BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, June 1st, and you're listening to Up to Date, our weekly recap of science news. I'm Kishore Hari. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have a mini interview on something that is near and dear to my heart, being happy. I feel like the news is inundated with all sorts of gloom and doom these days, and that's why it's more important than ever to have a smile on your face. And that's exactly what I get when I think about our mini interview this week, which is with Dean Burnett. He has a new book out called The Happy Brain. Uh, Dean is a neuroscientist turned stand-up comic who rose to some acclaim a few years ago when he wrote the book The Idiot Brain, about all the ways that we seem to lose battles with people that aren't as smart as us and or parts of our brain that seem to be less smart than others. It's a pretty humorous look, and his follow-up, The Happy Brain, takes that humorous slant to the next level, examining all the reasons that people are supposed to be happy and then putting that up against the science that we know. So I hope you enjoy our mini-interview this week with Dean Burnett. Dean Burnett, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. Very nice to be here. So I guess in a way, Happy Brain is a natural follow-up to your first book, Idiot Brain. But I want to go backwards just for a second. What motivated you to take this humorous look and scientific look at at the brain in the first place? Um, I I was doing stand-up comedy on the Cardiff scene, very, very small scene, only about four or five gigs. But I had a lot to say about a lot of material I wanted to get through. Trying to make science funny, like it became a bit of a it became a bugbear of mine because people kept telling me you can't you, you can either do science or comedy. You can't do both; they don't mix. And I've also had a bit of a problem with this reverence uh, that the brain is treated with in the mainstream media. The whole thing of it's amazing, it's spectacular, it's so mysterious. We don't know anything about it. And when you're a neuroscientist for as long as I've been, like you sort sort of get a bit more used to the brain. You sort of see its flaws and issues, and you realize it's not perfect. It's an evolved organ. It's uh, incredibly impressive, incredibly powerful, but it's it's imperfect and i said well like i don't think i can write the book about the brain because i'm not that impressed with it and they said well write about that and well i will and i did and that's the first book i wrote idiot brain so how the brain does things which are not efficient or illogical and not uh, the most practical way of doing things i guess that sense of imperfect actually flows through to the to the new book uh, on happiness as well because even though we associate happiness as this incredibly beautiful thing that arises out of our brain sometimes it, it's sort of a mess yeah it's very much a sort of it's a huge hodgepodge of all different factors sort of competing for 
dominance in our perception. And it's sort of, very, in hindsight, it's kind of a similar approach. Like, you know, the brain isn't that brilliant. So, so here's why you should stop thinking that. And this one is like, um, it's almost like a reaction to the, oh, cult is too strong a word, but the, the dominant societal view that happiness is crucial. Happiness is all important and you should be as happy as possible all the time. And this plethora and this sort of abundance of theories and claims as to how, you know, you can't go a week now without seeing some article about well, the key to happiness is, or the secret of happiness is, or here are, here's how you be happy with these five simple steps. And these these things are so common. There's millions of them out there. If you do even a bit of basic research, you find so many of these things. And they're all they're all stated with such confidence, like this is the key to happiness, this, 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 or this. And they're all completely different. So Either someone's, you know, either there are a million keys to happiness, all of which are equally valid, or someone's put on a fast one here. So I thought I'd sort of look at it from the ground up and see, look, in terms of what we know about the brain, what what is happiness? Why do these things you know, instill a positive reaction in the brain and not other things? And why do they do it and to what extent and how liable is it? So, yeah, it's sort of sort of trying to take away the, the mystique of happiness, really, and really get into the bare bones of what it's about and why it happens and in one society, how we can achieve it. Well, let's pull back that veil even farther, because you do pursue happiness through the vein of, of some societal thinking on what makes us happy, and then sort of combine it with some of the scientific ideas around that. So let's do that. I've always been told by my parents that money is the key to uh, happiness and security in my life. That's why they're still mad that I'm a scientist and not a doctor. But you did explore talking to various people about how money may or may not make them happy. What did you find? It's um, it's a cliche like of you know money can't buy you happiness or you know, money only makes you unhappy. According to the data that I did find, the studies that are out there, that money does make you happy up to a point, in that the human brain is powerful enough to recognize relevant rewards. So. The sort of you know, the reward pathways, those basic parts of the brain, which let us experience pleasure and reward when we do something beneficial. We have the cognitive ability to recognize that money allows us to survive. So money provides us with food, shelter, water, you know, everything we need to function and exist in the modern world. Money provides that. So you you give a pigeon or a rat like a five dollar bill, they will try and eat it or they just you know, use it as bedding. They won't really care about it. Whereas they give it to a starving human, they'll be very grateful. And they do experience like you know, pleasure at the, the very notion of it in a, at the deepest levels. But some studies suggest that the relationship between money and happiness or well-being or whatever you want to call it, life satisfaction, is curvilinear in that it, you know, the more money you have, the happier you are up to a point. And that point seems to be when you, you, know, when you judge that your, your needs are met, your security is established. But I did speak to uh, Kevin Green, he's a millionaire entre- entrepreneur in this country, and because he's vastly wealthy, but he still works. And like one of the things I established is that people do work, they do jobs they don't like, you know, when they get out of bed every morning to slog their way through another you know, eight-hour day, and they do it because they get paid. So when someone has more money than they can ever possibly spend, why do they still work? And for them, it becomes more of a, it's all about psychological needs, apparently, the idea of attainment, achievement, autonomy, being able to you know, gain approval from others. These are all things which become sort of more stimulating once you get to the point where money isn't really uh, a survival factor anymore. So that seems to be the general relationship between money and happiness insofar as the evidence I found uh, suggests. You mentioned being a, a stand-up comedian in addition to uh, uh, being a scientist. 
I've always uh, heard that laughter is a key to happiness, like especially inside of relationships. And and you explore what the relationship between laughter is and happiness. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because you know people laughter is such a big part of human interaction, human in society. Like there's the the thing of there's a concept I uncovered, which is really quite obvious when you think about it. Like Duchenne and non Duchenne laughter, the same as Duchenne and non Duchenne smiles. Named for the French neurologist who studied smiles, that the difference between a real and a false smile, you can tell them quite easily. We are very sensitive to these things, and there's also the difference between a real and a false laugh, but. Just because a laugh is technically false, like it doesn't have the emotional reaction that causes regular laughter, it is still a useful thing. It's like the social bonding thing. Someone says a naff joke and you don't think it's funny, but you realize by not laughing, you humiliate them and create an awkward social scene. You go, <laughs> oh, that's nice. And because you know, I'm, I'm very much used to that kind of laughter. You know, I said I was a comedian, I never said I was a good one. And that becomes, you know, becomes a social bonding thing. So laughter is a sort of a key social element, hence the whole relationships are all about laughter. And it also seems to be a big part of human mating behavior. You make someone laugh, like back when dating profiles are always in newspapers or in magazines, like it's always GSOH, good sense of humor. That was almost an essential part of everyone. Nobody wants a partner with a bad sense of humor. But what I could sort of tell, like laughter seems to be the most like rapid fire way to become happy. It's almost like a last line of defense for the brain when it comes to happiness. Like the phrases like, at times like this, all you can do is laugh. Right? So even if everything's got horribly wrong around you, you're still capable of laughter, even unless it's a particularly traumatic and horrible situation. But one of the things I do look into is comedians. Like, although you know, we think of it in those terms, they should be the happiest people of all. Like, they're constantly making people laugh. They have rooms full of people who adore them and sort of you know, respond very positively to things they say. They get paid for doing this. And it should be an excellent life, but lots, you know, the cliche is tears of a clown. Like, comedians aren't happy people. And it does seem to be that laughter, if used too much, it does seem to sort of, you become desensitized to it. And there's science to back that up? Yeah, and because a lot of, well, based on the uh, literature I've found, um, like a lot of studies into jokes and joke structure, a lot of laughter stems from incongruity. So the brain recognizes that something has gone wrong. You no, know, it's got this, you know, it's got a model of how the world should work and how things should go. Something challenges that and sort of presents itself, oh, this isn't right. Uh, but when it's, if it's resolved safely and with no, con no harmful consequence, that creates laughter. That's the general gist of it. Like this is sort of, this is like a little hub in the, between like three of the lobes, parietal, frontal, and temporal. So yeah, so there does seem to be this sort of underlying neurology of incongruity is what you know unexpectedness that's why jokes never work as well the second time but if you are a comedian if you do if you do comedy all the time then your brain sort of adapts to this sort of expectation of incongruity so it becomes harder to make you laugh because you you, know, you expect things the jokes are part of your your worldview now your brain sort of adapted to them and therefore it becomes harder to recognize this incongruity and um gain pleasure from it lastly i i I feel like 70% of the music industry is built on the notion that the key to happiness is falling in love. So many songs are written about that. What about the relationship of love to our happiness, at least from a, a science perspective? Well, when you fall in love with something, it does seem to have dramatic effects on the brain's functioning in that we do seem to have evolved like the neurological mechanisms to encourage uh, this sort of thing, to encourage falling in love with someone to find one specific person with which to spend great deals of time. 
and they're all underlying sort of neurological circuits like there's um or like hormones like oxytocin is like the cuddle hormone it seems to be deeply involved in enhancing emotional connections but when we do fall in love like the you know, so many different brain chemicals work and that uh, you know noradrenaline goes up so we become we don't sleep as much our attention is always focused on the object of our affection and one thing that does happen one thing that makes us look very happy is that like the parts like the amygdala and like the, the the threat detection mechanisms of the brain which recognize concerns and worries and cause anxiety these are somewhat suppressed so people who are newly in love they always tend to be we say they're on cloud nine in a sense of euphoria they don't recognize anything bad happening because those parts of their brain are actually kind of suppressed and you can sort of see how that would evolve in that you know you basically what, what you are less capable of doing is seeing the flaws and annoyances in your new partner and so eventually this effect wears off by which point you've established a long more concrete relationship so it's a good it's a good mechanism to ensure that people stick together beyond the initial foray of passion so yeah there is a lot of uh, underlying chemistry as to why why falling in love makes us so so happy but this i think that you know, again it's an, I, I, it's an irony in that the notion of love in our society has been romanticized because like I say, the whole the idea of happily ever after, the idea that once you find someone, fall in love, that's it then, you are happy. And that's not how it works. Like once you find someone, fall in love, that's great, but life doesn't stop. You don't stop. The world carries on. You have a partner now, which is great for you if, you know, if it's mutual, but your life continues. You're still a person who adapts and changes and moves on and learns new things. And that's going to be something you have to sort of contend with. So life changes, life adapts, you know, your, your, your situation will change. This idea that once you find someone, you are then default happy forever, isn't how the world works, isn't how the brain works. And this idea that that's, that's what we should be looking for. And once you find someone, you're done, that's unhelpful, that's unhealthy. And that doesn't really help anyone in the uh, in the long term. I mean, you started with this idea that the, the brain is imperfect. And, you know, having all this conversation about happiness, you know, there is no like happiness circuit. There's no set of things that go on in the brain that we can say, oh, that's that's happiness right there. It's this complicated human emotion that we feel that we ascribe all sorts of things to, but uh, it's not like happiness is this scientific pursuit. But people constantly pursue the, the keys to unlock happiness. Is that pursuit flawed after all of your research and, and looking through what we know about the, the science behind this is that pursuit of trying to understand happiness. Is it ever going to yield anything? I think it, it, it's definitely got lots of merits to it. Like the idea of understanding why we like certain things and how effective certain things are at raising our mood and sort of improving well-being. That's, that's all for the good. Um, I think maybe not so much scientific, but the sort of the cultural idea that you must pursue happiness at all costs and you must achieve it and it must be lasting and sustained. That's not necessarily as healthy or helpful because obviously happiness is an emotion is it, or it's a mood or it's a state of mind, however you want to define it. But it's one of many possible ones that we are capable of experiencing. And if you focus on one above all others and at the exclusion of other things, then you aren't as uh, robust a person. Like There's a concept of emotional competence, just like how you use all the different muscles in your body and they become all you know all all healthy and self-sufficient or we just focus on one you get one big muscle and the rest of your body becomes sort of atrophied the argument is that the same thing happens with the brain and emotions and you know, mental states so if you've never been sad or you've never been heartbroken or you've never been angry or fearful then you don't really know how to operate 
or how to function when you are in face of such a situations when these emotions are required. So like the, the cliche of if you've never been dumped, you don't really, you know, you're not as good a partner to someone else because you know what that feels like. You know, you know, the, the cost or the consequence of letting someone down that harshly. And you know, that makes you a better partner is the argument because you can empathize a lot better. People are so good at empathizing with other human beings. It's such a social species that, you know, other people's mind states influence their own to an incredible degree. Um, so there are lots of different ways to look at the whole happiness thing. But I think the scientific investigation into happiness is, is fine. That's good. I encourage such things. But the cultural idea that you must be happy and you must achieve happiness and it must be permanent. And if you're not happy, then you're doing something wrong. This, I think, is a, it's, it's a blind alley. I don't think there's anything to be gained from that ideal. It's going to put a lot of pressure on people where there shouldn't, there shouldn't really be any. And I think people ironically would be a lot happier if happiness wasn't such a sort of cultural requirement. On that note, I think I'm going to go exercise some other emotions today. Dean Burnett, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Mind. Anytime. That's it for Up to Date. We'll be back on Monday with an all new episode. Until then, I'm Kishore Hari. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.